Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't help you generate cubist versions of your family's holiday photos. But it will help you understand which supplier is best to help you roll out your plant-based packaging in Southeast Asia. Or identify the training your junior project manager needs to rise up the ranks. And automate repetitive tasks while you focus on big innovations. So you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology. Real-world results. That's SAP Business AI. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I'm joined today by my conservative counterpart, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson. Hey, good morning, Mike. Hey, Jay. Although, weirdly, it's it's afternoon, a little bit of an early That's recording yes, date. I'm, but I'm just used to saying good morning. But, well, I think yeah. it works out just fine. You know, anyway, it's it's uh, it, we get into these habits, you know, and you're not, uh, uh, you know, you're not uh, going too far off. So some people will be hearing this in the morning. So sure. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good day to you, I guess. So there you yes. go. You know, before we do get started with this slightly earlier episode of the politics, guys, I want to let everyone know about a well, pretty big format change on the podcast. For a number of years, we've released two episodes each week and our what we just call our main show, and that has the top three to five news stories, and then a, we call a bonus show that's available only to supporters of the show. Now, initially, the bonus show came out on Wednesdays, but more recently, we started releasing it at the same time as the main show since we record it back-to-back with the main show. We really didn't see any reason to you know, hold off three to four days before giving supporters access. But from now on, starting today, we'll be simplifying things in a way that we think should make things a little bit better for our supporters, and we hope give listeners who aren't currently supporters more reason to become supporters. So here's what we'll be doing. First off, we're moving to one episode per week, kind of a mega episode, if you will. Uh, What we've been calling the bonus show is really just a continuation of what we've been calling the main show. And so to streamline things for supporters, we're just making them one single longer episode. Now, we'll still have a free ad-supported preview of each episode, but we'll be limiting it to the first 30 to 40 minutes or so, probably one or two stories. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll become a supporter to get the full episode every week. But as always, if you're not in a position to support the show financially, but you would like to get the full show every week, that's not a problem at all. Just send me an email, mikeatpoliticsguys.com, and I will get you set up for free access. A number of people have done it, and it's really not a big deal at all. And finally, we will still be publicly thanking our newest supporters and supporters who've increased their level of support. But we're going to move that to the end of each episode so that way we can get to the, well, what you've come here to listen for in the first place a little quicker. All right. So with that out of the way, today we're going to be talking about the new COVID variant out of South Africa, oil price increases, and President Biden's decision to release 50 million barrels from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve, the Ahmad Arbery verdict, and the federal civil rights trials 
charges that his killers still face, President Biden's nominations for Fed chair and vice chair, and uh, maybe some other stuff. We'll see how that works, uh, including that Patriot Purge video. Uh, But before we get to that, we will take a quick break and start things off. All right. So we open today with the late breaking and pretty disheartening news of a new COVID variant, one that appears to not only be the most easily transmissible so far, but due to its many mutations, might make current vaccines less effective. On Friday, the World Health Organization named the variant Omicron and designated it a variant of concern. Now, so far, only a few dozen cases of it have been identified since it was discovered by South African authorities earlier this week, but it's now been seen in multiple areas, including Botswana, Belgium, Israel, and Hong Kong. Multiple countries moved quickly to restrict travel from Southern Africa in an effort to contain the new variant. And just minutes before we started recording, the Biden administration announced that the United States would join those countries in the travel bans. Stocks around the world dropped sharply on the news, which comes on the heels already of a pretty significant uptick of COVID throughout Europe in recent weeks. So right now, as I said, this is a very late breaking story. We know next to nothing about this new variant, but it's it's obviously not good news, not the sort of news we would have hoped to have heard on Friday morning after our Thanksgiving break. So, Jay, uh, what are your thoughts at this point? Well, I'm sort of with you, right, that I, I really there's not much I know that I can say um, other than, than just what I've, I've read and, and seen that um, it looks like countries are taking some pretty quick actions to prevent the spread uh, beyond Africa. Um, uh, and I'm, I'm you know, hopeful that 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 works and that that slows things down. Um, but as as we've seen, I and I think this is something that um, I mean, it speaks to COVID in general. The the virus is it's it's less of a a it's not a a problem that is necessarily uh, politically solvable right or or solvable by government changes uh, it's it's a virus it's it's something different so um, yeah I, I guess I'm with you I'm I'm hopeful this turns out to be a a not so bad variant um, but you know we'll 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 know more later yeah you know and. I guess my initial thoughts are it's unfortunately not surprising that this variant has emerged in South Africa. I mean, it's a country that is that that struggles with a lot of things, uh, you know, developing country. Only 24 percent of South Africans are fully vaccinated. And of course, when you have a large population of unvaccinated or partially vaccinated people, especially if they are together in large groups, that is just a recipe for uh, a lot of mutations to possibly happen. And uh, so, you know, when we take a look at the world, something like the last data I've seen, only 42.7% of the world population is fully vaccinated. And again, that is very uneven and uneven in what's, you know, generally turned the global South and developing countries. There are a lot of areas where there are struggles. And one of the reasons maybe we see this in South Africa now is in a sense, there they're more advanced because they have very good capabilities for detecting these new strains that a lot of other countries in the developing world 
don't really have. So there certainly could be more of these variants out there that, you know, just have gone undetected to this point. And, and that's why from the very beginning, I think, you know, at least some people were pointing out this isn't a, uh, an America problem or, a, you know, a, a thing where you can close your borders to it in a way. This is a global problem. And until we have vaccination rates that are significantly higher all around the world, uh, it seems reasonable, unfortunately, to not be surprised when we see these variants that pop up. Yeah, I, I think, um, again, I'm not going to weigh in on on what we know or don't know uh, on, on the variant, but I think you're right in saying that uh, there's always been the assumption that there will be variants. So. Yeah. And, and, you know, and, well, and there's and there's yeah, there's no way there's there's no way. Again, uh, I think uh, vaccines are certainly uh, a worthwhile uh, tool. Um, but there's no way you can uh, uh, legislate uh, against the variants. I guess that was the, the point I was trying to make earlier. It's- sure. You can't legislate against variants, but governments can certainly do. Uh, I, I would say it's not certainly a virus is not political in its nature, but I think that politics can play a huge role in terms of the uh, effective countermeasures against variants. For instance, uh, if sure. if government officials are all very much sending a consistent pro-vaccine uh, message, that can matter a whole lot. Or if if first world, if first world wealthy developed countries do an awful lot or try to do what they can to make sure that vaccines are available in countries around the world, that can make a big difference. And all of those are certainly political decisions. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you there. But uh, um, there's there's not a lot, uh, again, to say that, that the United States can do, uh, which has made vaccines widely available throughout the world. Um, you, you can't there, there, there's no there's no policy button to push that hasn't been pushed already, I guess. Yeah, I think in, in, yes. I, th- I think certainly in terms of in terms of what government has done, the United States has done a lot. You can always argue more can or possibly should be done, and I, I think there are arguments to be made for that. Or, or much earlier on, we talked about the Defense Production Act and that sort of thing, and there were plenty of people who, you know, uh, certainly w- would point to those sort of things, but. I also think it's not well, we have to separate the politics from the policy. I think it's fair to say that there are a number of people, not just in the United States, but around the world who have decided to try to make political capital off out of, uh, you know, being against measures, public health measures that we know are effective in reducing the spread of the uh, of the virus. And so that that's not a policy decision, but it's certainly a political decision. And, and yes, I am talking about, you know, Donald Trump and, and other folks specifically like that. Yeah, I, again, I, I don't I'm, I'm not seeing the, the straight line between uh, Donald Trump, who's been out of office no, it's a for line. 11 months, for 11, for 11 months now and and a variant in South Africa. Um, and, you know, and I'd, I'd also point out Donald Trump was was really a, a champion of getting vaccines made quickly. Um, Joe Biden in the campaign said that, uh, well, we wouldn't even have a vaccine uh, and wouldn't be able to distribute it until probably at least the middle of this year. Yeah. And that gets um, in the consistent messaging. He was, he You're was right. wrong. But what I'm I'm, and I'm, I'm just my point is um, this is this is one of these situations where there's not a lot that we can do to control um, one, how how viruses mutate and, and two, who gets vaccinated or doesn't get vaccinated uh, half a world away. I I guess I agree with you in part. I I certainly think 
we and the other rich countries of the world can and should be doing more on this and other issues when it comes to the developing world. But that's a that's a longer discussion and one we'll probably have, unfortunately, at some point, and unfortunately, I say because it's necessary once we know more. And I don't want to jump into that at the last minute. But, but I think that while I don't entirely disagree with you on either of those points you're making, I think there is definitely some distance between us that will probably become a little more, uh, we'll be able to clarify and expand on as, as we talk about this. So hopefully this will be like other variants of concern that have popped up and, it, it, you know, we're certainly both would like that to be the case, you know. Uh, but I think the case for travel bans, travel bans seem to be to be oftentimes a case of, well, by the time you know enough to be able to announce a travel ban, there are already people in those countries who have that. So it can yeah. possibly oh, yeah. you know, mitigate things. But, you know, I think the best thing that, that people can do now and government can do now in the United States and other places is to have that consistent message. I think a lot of people argue that the, that the U.S. government was too uh, slow to support and be, uh, give the okay to booster shots, for instance, for everyone. That just only happened in the last couple of weeks. And certainly, I, know, I got I got mine. I got mine uh, Wednesday. Got mine as well. So, so Tuesday, Tuesday. Yeah, and so so you know, I think that's that's the biggest thing that consistency in messaging, and I think there has been improvement on that recently. So uh, again, this is a story that's still very much developing, and uh, uh, you know, we we hope we hope that there won't be a lot more on this, but uh, well, we, we shall see, I suppose. So yeah, all right. With that, let's move on to our uh, first well scheduled story of the of the episode i guess and that has to do with inflation and specifically sorry specifically 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 oil prices but before we do that we will take a quick break and be right back with that story okay so in response to continuing high gasoline prices president biden on tuesday announced a release of 50 million barrels of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve, a move that's being made in conjunction with similar releases from a number of other countries, including China, Japan, South Korea, Great Britain, and India. Now, there have been similar coordinated releases like this in the recent, semi-recent past, uh, before the Persian Gulf War in 91, after Hurricane Katrina in 2005, and then there was a war in Libya in 2011, and there was a, a one of those done in response to that as well, oil disruptions caused by that. But the decision, this decision to release the reserves only came after the administration failed to convince OPEC countries to increase their production of oil. And in announcing the SPR release, President Biden said, oil producing countries and large companies have not ramped up the supply of oil quickly enough to meet demand. OPEC members are scheduled to meet again on December 2nd, but at present there's really little indication they're inclined to increase production, I would say especially now in light of the new uh, Omicron variant that may probably make them less inclined to do that even if they weren't well, in the first in, place. In fact, uh, I think some some oil-producing countries have said they are in response to the uh, uh, release of strategic petroleum reserves, they are they're, uh, uh, partially uh, for a time going to halt or slow process or slow uh, um, production. Yeah. Um, so that we, we end up sort of with a, a net, you know, where we would have been anyway. So, And, and I think I, people who know about this stuff on both the right and the left, I think there's this one of these issues where there's a certain bipartisan consensus that this strategic petroleum reserve release, even when coordinated with 
other countries to increase its effect is at best uh, a very, very short term sort of uh, solution to a prop to, to this problem, uh, just for those for those things that you for those reasons that you just mentioned. Yeah. But, you know, I should also. Yeah, and go ahead. My, my again, my understanding is, you know, if if all their oil production were to be shut off, the strategic petroleum reserves would get us through two and a half days. Yeah, it's not not a whole lot, you know, and, and so but I think it was there was a lot of pressure on the administration to act as if they were doing something, even though I mean, we take a look at U.S. average gas prices. They hit a low of just under two dollars a gallon in April of 2020 for understandable reasons. But since then, they've been pretty steadily rising. Uh, but that increase actually began to slow slightly over the last couple of weeks. And, and that that followed a peak in crude oil prices in late October of this year. And so you would expect those two things to kind of go in tandem. So some people are arguing it's even more of kind of symbolic politics because it looked like we were potentially past that peak. And I think there's maybe something something to be said for that. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely, well, my, uh, I start with the premise that if this is a strategic petroleum reserve, then it ought to be used strategically. It ought to be uh, something that we we have uh, four times, like getting ready for the Persian Gulf War, where we think there may be an actual choke point, there where where uh, the flow of oil may be stopped, uh, when we may face uh, some sort of embargo. Um, those type of, in in most cases, military uh, situations or perhaps natural disaster situations. Um, that, that wipes out, you know, uh, 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 processing facilities like like Hurricane Katrina did. Yeah, I. I uh, so uh, the the idea of just uh, doing this so we can see a momentary price drop or a a slowing in uh, in domestic prices, um, I think is is irresponsible. Yeah, and I think even I mean even if we do see a momentary drop, that would assuming the underlying problem isn't dealt with that that wouldn't even do anything really significant for consumers again it's it's more like this is being used as the, in this case the political uh petroleum reserve as opposed yeah. to strategic and so yeah, yeah i i understand the pressure on the administration but i disagree i think to to a certain to a large extent with with this in terms of policy terms but to me this raises the larger issue of uh, uh, energy independence Right. I mean, the, the larger problem here yeah. is, is the variability of fossil fuel prices, not not just that, but the fact that the United States can't control those prices. I mean, it, it, there's this I think there's this idea that some people have of, you know, we've reached energy independence and, and it, people don't understand what that means. In one sense, it's defined as being, well, when you when you create, when you when you make more, sorry, pull out of the ground, right, more than you use. Yeah. But that's not how any globally traded commodity works. And I don't think people get that, that because of the global nature of the fossil fossil fuels as a commodity, that energy independence doesn't mean a whole lot as a concept, really, not what people think it means. And I would expect you would agree with that. Well, yes and no. Okay. Um, I think, yeah, there there is a global supply and demand, but... Um, and we are to some extent powerless to control all of that. Uh, that said, uh, there have historically been a whole lot of places that, that produce oil uh, who may not have our best interests at heart. Uh, there may be times when getting oil from those places might be impossible. 
Uh, and and I think the more homegrown production we can have, the, the stronger we are from a strategic standpoint. And the more that Americans and American companies uh, can control the input into that bigger supply and demand, right? I mean, America, the United States is, you know, it's, it's, it, it's not as if, um, um, it, again, this, this is a global supply. So as we reduce supply, that's going to, to um, uh, allow those places that keep on pumping to have more, more influence. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, to some extent, I'm scratching my head a little bit saying, man, if there were only there were some way we could get oil from Canada. Um, but, but look, the, the Biden administration on day one and has, has made its, itself hostile to fossil fuels uh, across the board, except when it comes to uh, either the Russians uh, getting uh, uh, being able to build pipelines uh, or or putting pressure on OPEC to produce produce more. And I think that's. A lot of people, uh, certainly Republicans, and certainly I do, uh, see that as a a mixed message at best. And, and look, I, I understand it's not a matter of uh, oh, you just build the pipeline and the uh, the prices drop. Uh, but it's also difficult to say that there's no um, there's no connection between those and and the. The attitude that the administration had um, a couple of weeks ago, I think this was when I was on a break, but um, uh, Energy Secretary Jennifer Granholm was asked about, you know, what are her, her thoughts on, on increasing domestic oil production ahead of this? And she chuckled because, gosh, that's the funniest thing anybody ever heard. Can you imagine domestic oil production? And it really, I think, would be is, is that's really sort of insulting for a whole lot of Americans who are struggling to fill their tank. And if, if I'm a Republican strategist, I'm going to uh, have uh, chuckling Jennifer Granholm in uh, in a whole lot of ads next year. Um, so so look, I if you want to say, oh, it's not all Biden's fault. Sure. Uh, there's no there's no button that you can push to say lower gas prices, uh, although there, there sort of is. And he's trying to push it. Um, but but look, if, if, if he has sent the message that we don't want to do any more oil exploration, we don't want to do any more oil transportation. Um, or or uh, really produce any more oil here in the United States, uh, uh, and and no thanks Canada, we don't want yours either. Uh, I think that sends a pretty strong message to the Saudi Arabias and the Russias and uh, the Irans and and the other places that uh, are happy to keep producing. We're not producing as they see fit. You know, I I there are some there are some fair points you make there, but I think your analysis is pretty oversimplified, I guess. And in one way it's oversimplified, I think, is that uh, the cost to produce uh, a barrel of oil varies widely among different countries. It costs the Saudis something like half as much, less than half as much per barrel to produce. And that's going to, so oil isn't this thing that's just like a, a, we're talking about widgets that any country can produce them at the same amount, the same price. And, and that has to, that really has to weigh into that. The fact that it costs both the U.S. and Canada considerably more to produce a barrel of oil than it does, say, uh, uh, you know, Iran or Saudi Arabia or a lot of these other countries, that has to play into it. And it certainly plays into the thinking well, a lot of these. This... Well, let me finish here. A lot of okay. these companies, that's one part of it. Another part of it also is you have to consider what you have in terms of proven reserves. Now, the United States pumps or produces more oil than uh, than 
pretty much anywhere else. In fact, in 2020, it was the leading oil producer in the world. But based on the most recent data I've seen, at that current rate of production, the U.S. has about 15 years of proven reserves. That's not a whole lot. And so all of those things have to go into the calculus. So I'm not saying you're wrong, Jay, but I'm saying that it's a lot more complex, I think, than your, than your analysis would suggest. Why is it why is it more expensive, you think, uh, for to produce a bar- barrel of oil here than it is in Saudi Arabia? Well, in part because it's easier to extract oil in certain places than in others, just like it's easier to extract. Yeah. Uh, I mean, easier physically to extract it, literally. Yeah. So, so that's why I, it's, it's, it's kind of it's kind of funny. So actually um, driving around today, uh, I was listening to this was the BBC News um, because I'm classy like that, Mike. I'm oh, listening yeah. to the international news. Um, but there was a, a discussion on uh, the the fact that uh, President Biden has uh, increased the the cost, the uh, lease costs for oil and gas leases uh, in American public lands. Um, so he is he is by you know unilaterally made American oil production more expensive. On the first day in office, he proudly signed the, after saying he wasn't going to ban fracking, he signed uh, uh, an executive order banning all the fracking that he legally could on day one. Um, thank God he did, yeah. And, and I'm, well, uh, you can say thank God, thank God you did. And, I just um, did, yeah. Um, again, and thank, thank God he did. And uh, please, Saudi Arabia uh, and Russia, uh, please keep pumping oil for us. Well, yeah, and, and that, but, but see, that's. We're not going to, we don't want to get our hands dirty. Um, and and if if at some point the Saudis or the Russians uh, uh, or or whomever uh, say no, um, which it sounds like they're saying. See, uh, I think that then, the part of this that you're do? right about, and you're you're wrong about an awful lot on this, in my view. But I think the part of it you're right about is that we are at present very very reliant on fossil fuels by, as the main source of our energy. And so you're right on that. And you're right on the fact that the largest proven reserves, the lowest cost of production anywhere in the world are countries that are, I would, it's fair to say, are inimical to our values, assuming they are our values, non-democratic or democratic in name only countries. And that's a big problem. And so I think there are a lot of ways you can approach that. Certainly, one argument is that, well, we need to make it as cheap as possible for U.S. producers to produce oil. And you know what? If the environment weren't an issue, I would totally agree with that. But the environment is an issue. And the fact that we have, you know, billions of people in China and in India who are rapidly becoming modernized and are going to need energy desperately bad and aren't going to be willing to settle for a lower standard of living just because means that I think the problem is going to get worse before it gets better. And I am not nearly as sanguine about a technological solution to this as you are. And so given those fundamental beliefs I have about the potential, strong potential for an environmental catastrophe for humanity, that puts the Biden administration in a tough position. And I don't pretend that there are any easy solutions to this. The one solution that's been suggested has to do with some sort of a carbon tax or fossil fuel tax. In fact, you'll recall back in the 90s, actually, the idea of a carbon tax was actually a Republican idea. I perish the thought today. But the idea here would be to sort of have a graduated long term fossil fuel tax uh, with, uh, you know, in a way to sort of. 
I guess you could say, stabilize the price with with some of the money from that taxes going back into supporting a transition, a more orderly transition from fossil fuels to cleaner sources of energy. Because the transition, I think, if left to the market, is going to be awfully messy and disastrous. Um, okay. I, I guess I'm not my my point is uh if if we're concerned about oil and gas prices uh the best thing to do is to do what we can to increase the supply or at least have the capacity to increase the supply and not send the message to other countries that we will not increase the supply well i get that and i agree with you as far as it goes but and, if you will grant me and, the point that if i i'm not saying you're concerned about the climate, about climate change, ultimately. Maybe you're not, but that's another conversation maybe. But, yeah, but I'm saying list, if, but if, you, if you can put yourself in my position, if you, can accept, if you can accept just for the sake of argument my belief that there are huge externalities involved here, uh, the possibility yeah. for massive climate disaster that will cost trillions and trillions of dollars and, and you know, millions of, or more of lives, then the calculus becomes different. So what I'm saying is that I this is not an unreasonable position for me to take, and I'm wondering if no, you would. No, it's not. No, it's not. It's not unreasonable. Um, what I think you're missing is uh, just the the idea that um, people will, uh, if we don't produce oil, one that other countries won't, uh, or that other other countries won't still need that oil right it's it's not as if the chinese or the indians uh or anywhere else in the developing world is going to say we are going to forego uh development right sure absolutely because the americans aren't making enough oil we're just going to get it from someone else yeah uh that will give that that and so my, my my point is the same amount of fossil fuels are going to be burned uh the question is do you want to uh who do you who do you want to be in charge of the spigot and who do you want to be pocketing all the money from the sale of fossil fuels? I don't know if I necessarily agree with that premise that the same amount are going to be burned. I think the, no, there certainly is an attempt, and, and you will maybe argue that it's a cynical and not uh, well-intentioned, not honest attempt made by leadership in a number of countries to try to do what they can to transition to clean energy and actually burn less in fossil fuels, because I think a lot of national leaders really believe that there are these long-term consequences. And so I guess I don't, I don't, I certainly accept in the short term your premise. And I think that in general, the U.S. maybe takes, not maybe, does take a short-term hit for not making it easier and cheaper to produce oil. But in the long term, I see that as a potential huge benefit. And also, I think there are decisions that are being made independent of government by a lot of these, you know, by, by a lot of oil companies just saying that, well, you know, or energy companies, as they like to call themselves now, to you know, not invest in U.S. oil production, in part because it's just cheaper, uh, absent everything else to produce in other places. And that that's not a right, government decision. That's back just to what I just that's yeah, just geography. My point is that we've well, it's geography and it's also regulation. That's a part of it. Sure. But I say geography is a much bigger part of it than regulation. Well, when, when the when the regulation is no fracking, um, that that cuts a big part of that. Although there, I mean, so, I mean, there's not no fracking, but your fracking is, has been reduced under the Biden administration. Right. So I just wanted to make that. He, he banned, but no, but he, he banned all the fracking that he could legally ban. Yeah, exactly. But that's not yet. Yeah. yeah. I'm saying fracking goes on all over this country. 
Sure. Still today. That, that's all I'm saying. I just wanted to, yeah. I just wanted to make that, you know, make that, uh, make that right. clear because right now, I mean, in the, the last, last year for which we have data, I believe the United States is still by far the largest producer of natural gas in, in the world. The data I have a year is considerably more than Russia, which is, which is number two and holding big parts of really Europe good. hostage over that. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because we, you know, we're now in a situation where, where the Russians are essentially holding uh, much of Western Europe hostage. Yeah, absolutely. And that's a, and in big part, that's a problem. Well, in big part, that problem has come about because a lot of countries in Western Europe with, God, I never thought I'd say this, the notable exception of France, you go France, uh, have abandoned nuclear power for all sorts of reasons. Yeah. And that has just caused, um, I mean, Germany is really hugely defend, uh, dependent on fossil fuels because they moved away from nuclear. And, and this is the, this is the cost of that. One thing though, I, that, that's one thing I think, Jay, that you and I, for all of our disagreements on this particular issue and on energy policy in general, do agree on is that the move away from nuclear power developing it as sort of a uh, a crossover uh, not a band-aid but sort of an in-between kind of technology that's that's been really neglected we've gone in the wrong direction and there were plenty of really difficult regulatory hurdles for uh, opening a new power plant nuclear power plant in the United States and that's not a good thing yeah no and I, I'm with you on that and actually I, I read somewhere and I, I wish I, I if had I, if I'd known we'd go this direction I would have uh, had it in front of me um, but that one of the reasons that, that nuclear power is more difficult is, is there's an allegation that, uh, the oil companies or energy companies, uh, have sort of tried to steer, uh, the extent we move towards a, a greener energy, move away from nuclear, which they don't really have any, any fingers in yeah. for the most part. Um, uh, and this is, okay, this is just something completely random, but also like show my age and, and uh, <laughs> So the other day I was I was listening to like old albums, uh, old music that I, I liked in high school. Uh, and one of them was uh, Sting's album Dream of the Blue Turtles. And there's a song uh, on that album um, uh, called We Work the Black Seam. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I know the song. It's going through and, my head. And, and it just it just struck me as the position that Sting was arguing in 1986 uh, was very much uh, uh, the anti-nuclear and and how horrific it is that uh, England and Western Europe is shifting towards nuclear uh, at the expense of coal mining jobs. Um, I just think that's one of those. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot more. If you look at the data, a lot more lives and a lot more lives have been lost, and a lot more people's health has been imperiled significantly due to uh, fossil fuel, coal mining, than. Uh, anything you can attribute to nuclear power production. Though, right. that being said, I understand that there is a very real and, and significant concern about nuclear waste and how to store it safely and so forth. And that that's, you know, proponents, I think, of nuclear power are sometimes too quick to just sort of poo-poo that sort of thing. And it right. is a real issue. But, you know, I think our technologies for dealing with that are certainly better than they were, uh, well, back when Sting was singing of the Blue Turtles or dreaming of Blue Turtles and so forth. And, and you know, and I think that's why this sort of thing is important as a bridge technology. That's the word I was looking for earlier yeah. between fossil fuels, which are definitely bad for the planet and renewables, which are way better for the planet. Right. So, so my, I, my point is uh, 30 years ago uh, or, or however long ago it is now, it sort of it sort of blurs. Um, <laughs> the environmental position was was the staunchly anti-nuclear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this is sort no of nukes. exactly the point you were making. Yeah. 
And and what that got us is, at least got the Western Europe, is more reliance on fossil fuels and, uh, at this point, more reliance on the Russians. Yeah. And and my point is uh, something along the lines of, of unintended consequences. Oh, yeah. you, you can't always tell. Yeah. And that's um, the nice thing about nuclear and, and a lot of other renewables is that it's not going to be the sort of power that the Russia or Venezuela or so forth are going to be able to have any sort of a stranglehold on. And that's why... Unless you sign over your uranium mines for the Russians, but thank God nobody would be stupid yeah, enough yeah, well, to do that. Maybe another story for another time. Anyway, that's... <laughs> but that's uh, Anyway, yeah. All right. We will, we, we will end that story on that note of semi-agreement and Jay sort of teasing a, another story we maybe could get into. But... That is it for this week's free ad supporter preview of the politics, guys. So for the full episode where we will be discussing the uh, Aubrey verdict, the Biden's Fed nominations, the Patriot Purge video, and a whole bunch of listener questions. I think we should have time for a number of those as well. Uh, all you have to do to get that is to go to patreon.com slash politics guys sign up become a supporter or again if you are not in a position to be able to support the show right now send me an email mike at politicsguys.com and i will get you all set up with free access to our full show you can also support us through a one-time or recurring donation on paypal as well as on venmo where we're at politics guys and we always include support links in our show notes and at politicsguys.com politics slash support. 